0: You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rathke, President of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. The U.S. economic relationship with Europe is the largest and most intense on the planet, bigger than U.S.-China trade, or any other for that matter, which is an important thing to keep in mind. French President Emmanuel Macron published this week his recommendations for the future of Europe. It is a vision for refounding European solidarity in the face of a more difficult and dangerous world. The impetus is that 2019 will be a year of major changes in Europe. The election of a new European Parliament at the end of May, the selection of a new president of the European Council, that's the body where heads of EU governments meet like Chancellor Merkel and President Macron, A new European Commission will take office, currently headed by Jean-Claude Juncker, that's the standing structure of the European Union, and the European Central Bank will get a new leader after Mario Draghi's term ends. Now, the EU is notoriously complex, how it operates, the authorities that are exerted in Brussels by the European Commission, and what responsibilities the member states hold uh, closely uh, for themselves. That's an important part of the United States' difficulty engaging with the European Union, I think. Uh, But there's no way around it. It's a market of over 500 million people, even after Brexit, if it happens. uh, It'll still be 440 million people. It's an economy about as big as that of the United States, and one of the major players in the international economic scene. Much of the U.S. view of the European Union comes to us through a British lens, which is natural considering our historic affinity and our linguistic closeness with the United Kingdom. So Brexit dragging out for the past three years shapes the perceptions of many Americans. But it's not the biggest thing happening with regard to Europe, and it's nowhere near the whole story. There's a growing discussion in Europe often overlooked here. Some of the issues are the same ones that we grapple with. What are the challenges from China's state capitalist model for the global economy, especially when it comes to technology and the industries of the future? There's also a debate happening about whether the European Union, which has focused for decades on promoting competition among European companies, should instead shift more toward an industrial policy that promotes European champions on the global stage whether more European integration is a good thing, and if so, whether that should be on the economy and competition or in social and labor market policy, for example. The world is changing, a more powerful and influential China, growing interpenetration and interconnectedness of our economies. In a word, globalization. But globalization itself is changing, if that's not too meta for you. And European countries and the European Union have to change too. Our guest today is one of the smartest German economists out there, the director of the German Economic Institute in Cologne, Professor Michael Hüter. We talked about what he calls the end of the second era of globalization and the challenges of shaping the third era of globalization, creating a European and an international framework that is politically sustainable and economically effective. What are the competing visions for the future of the European Union in a different phase of globalization? Where can Europe do more economically, socially, and politically? And what is the role of the EU in security, not just the military aspects of defense, but also security of Europe's borders and other measures like law enforcement that contribute to European citizens' sense of safety? And most importantly for us here in Washington, how do those affect the transatlantic relationship Join me and senior fellow Peter Raschisch for our conversation with Michael Hutter. I'd like to welcome you to this edition of The Zeitgeist. And uh, we are here today with Peter Raschisch, director of the geoeconomics program at AICGS. And our special guest today is uh, Professor Michael Hutter, the director of the German Economic Institute in Cologne. Um, Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, we are going to talk a bit about globalization, about the European Union, and about views of the world economy from Germany. And we could not think of a better guest to have with us uh, to to talk about that. So, um, Michael, if I could start by just uh, maybe at a general level, uh, is there a problem uh, in, in globalization? And what is the problem from your perspective?
1: The problem is that globalization has no more the same acceptance as it has in the 1990s or in the early years after the year 2000. And this has very different reasons. The first is we realize an exhaustion of globalization. That means um, world trade elasticity is no more above one. That means if there's an increase of world production of 2% and world trade of 2% is this one. But normally world trade has a higher growth rate over a year because it's an intensification of division of labor cross-border. And this was the most important signature of this second globalization, the globalization of the value chain, and this is coming to an end. The second is true if you look on the number look on the number of countries which have a high growth rate above four percent of GDP. It's all declining and their importance for the world economy in economic terms is declining. So from this point we see an exhaustion of globalization. We see also that the people are more reluctant. They have more um arguments against this fear of adjustment, which is caused from globalization, uh, which is caused from interference from abroad, and they cannot um, understand very easily.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So we've got an economic problem that you described, and that is um, that uh, that trade is not growing in the same, uh, at the same rate that it has been. We've also got a social and political problem. And so maybe we'll break those things down and try to go after mm-hmm. them um, uh, one by one. Um, a- I guess the first question is if we have a social and political problem that the faith of people in globalization um, is changing. Um, how do you see that manifesting itself uh, in a German context and in a European context, and what is what are the implications of that? Mm. We
1: see a change in the political system, specifically in the system of the political parties in Germany as already it was uh, on the scene in France or in other European countries, the, the right-wing populist parties, there are uh, a signal and and uh, characteristic for this changing situation that the people ask for identity, ask for um, a national security which makes not only clear that they have security for the living conditions, but they can hold on with their cultural definition of life, of daily life. And this is for most of the people under threat.
0: And, and can I interrupt you there? Um, so. Do you see this as being driven by globalization, by which I think we generally mean the increasing um, trade and economic interconnectedness across the world, or do you see that being driven in equal measure by things like migration? Um, that have uh, you know, more to do with the question of, of national borders mm. and of the integrity of, yeah. of, of the state.
1: I would say the, the quality of what's made in metaphoric, the faces of globalization have changed. It's not only trade, it's about investment, it's about migration, it's about the diffusion of knowledge, it's about transparency, using digitization. So the impression of the people is that everything they do is transparent to the world, and everything that what they are doing is under adjust, adjustment threat from abroad due to reasons they cannot really very easily understand what's going on in the silicon valley as the driving force of digital transformation what's going on in uh, sub-saharan africa as a driving force for migration and what's going on in russia and middle east uh, uh, posing new question on security and the question in which way we are able
0: to to answer this uh, new political insecurity from from abroad. Okay, so so this definition of globalization is then a broad one because it encompasses um, uh, all of these things. And maybe to come back to the example with which you started, which is the the trade uh, e- elasticity. Mm-hmm. Um, brings me back to my uh, <laughs> undergraduate economic studies. Um, but the, the point you made, that that uh, trade wa- was growing for many years at a faster rate than global GDP, and that now that has uh, leveled off. But what about these other aspects of globalization? Do you see the same leveling off? For example, if you think about digitalization and, and the expansion of the mm-hmm. digital economy, I think w- y- you might be able to argue we are still in a period of, of accelerating um, globalization. Or how do you see that... Aspect. Yes, but we have no clear vision. What is the next step
1: in the digital transformation? We all know what is on just on the table. What is the impact on the, uh, on, the on the big internet companies and uh, their uh, n- new devices for daily life organization? But if you ask for the economic impact, it's still open. What is about industry 4.0 or the IoT, Internet of, Inter- of Things? Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on in the uh, B2C world um, on Amazon? on uh, BNB, Airbnb and so on so this is this so much is just on the way the dynamic is high but nobody can tell you what the next step what's the appropriate next step so the insecurity about investment is high that's one other aspect of exhaustion of globalization.
0: Okay, so so it's not that the steam has run out of that part of globalization. However, there is a public desire that is now finding its it, expression in our politics to kind of grab the reins a little bit harder yeah. and and try to steer that or at least to place some control uh, on it.
2: Uh, Michael, if I could play devil's advocate for a moment, you you talk about trade slowing down. Uh, but maybe um, there's that's not so bad. What I mean is trade could be slowing down because of things like 3D printin- printing, which means you don't have to have factories spread all over the world as much. Trade may be slowing down because Chinese wages are rising, so it makes sense now to manufacture things in Europe or in the United States again. So so maybe some of these problems are taking care of themselves, and maybe we shouldn't be too worried if, if trade is yeah. slowing down. Yeah,
1: that's true. They have also driving forces which are not really problematic. Uh, 3D printing is a very interesting case. It will uh, change the regional structure of production, and therefore they have impact on trade. It's quite clear. But if you're on the overall figures, there's no argument that despite of that, there should be no deepening of, further deepening of the division of labor. And division of knowledge, and that is what uh, came to an halt because um, there is no more a wider investment activity cross border, and I think that's another second, another important point, saying that capital allocation, which was also driving force of the last years, last decades on uh, globalization, um, is more or less. An, story of the Western Hemisphere. It's a rich, rich affair. So we don't see trickle down of capital investments from the richer countries to the poorer countries, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa. So this is also an indication that globalization has come to a halt and there's something like a global exhaustion on the way.
0: And and does that mean also that things, uh, that uh, initiatives like the Belt Road Mm -hmm. Initiative from China, which focuses to a significant degree on uh, developing countries, including in Africa, that those are really just a blip on the radar screen? against the context of an overall um, slowdown of, uh, of foreign investment?
1: I think, yes, what we see from China is um, is part of a strategy which has a time target in 2050, 100 years after the communist revolution and the communist party took over the office and of government mm-hmm. in Beijing. And saying that in this, in 2050, they were, the Chinese want to be back as number one, the leading economy and the leading political power. So they're doing that. Uh, as an argument for uh, one belt, one road, China 2025, yeah. to improve the quality of the production and so on, so they all they d- do is a strategic aspect or has a, a strategic aspect behind it. it has nothing to do with a market-driven globalization. I think that's an in- important thing we should see, uh, either the, the the different model. The opposite model is the G20 model came from Germany in 2017, the global compact with Africa. Mm-hmm. This global compact with Africa asked the African people, the African leaders, what is your idea for a better economic situation? And then we will offer some money to them. It's not our idea to say what is the appropriate institution. So this is a totally different approach than we had in the past.
0: Okay.
2: I know that one of the observations you have made is that Because globalization, the second globalization, has taken place according to Western values that there was an assumption that that would uh, increase the feeling of security among people in the West. But as you said just now, that's not necessarily been the case. Things are coming from a Silicon Valley or other places far away. In the next phase of globalization, how can we help, help the average citizen to feel a bit more secure? Is that something we should ask from the next phase of globalization?
1: I think we should answer two different questions. The first question, how to offer some uh, appropriate solutions for the losers of globalization. We have in all countries and economies also losers of globalization and maybe Germany is uh, working better than most of the other due to the vocational training system, due to the specific uh, regional structure, regional balanced structure of manufacturing and service sector interaction. Um, but it's, it's, I think, it's an important story, and for France or look for Great Britain, the Midlands, you see uh, an, an an open question. It's not to st- answer how to to offer new ideas, new solutions for the losers of globalization. That's the first question. The second is that we have really to bring in the for gotten countries in this global world. So that means, once again, sub Saharan Africa. Uh, we need institutional settings, which makes clear for the capital market it's, it's worthwhile to invest there. You can have stable conditions, despite of the fact that
0: it's a different kind of statehood. Okay. And you know, if we turn back to the European Union, um, and you, you alluded to Great Britain, but you know one of the, the challenges that I think Europe faces is determining the level at which uh, politics should respond to the phenomena of globalization. These are different things. They affect our uh, societies, our media markets, um, uh, the international allocation of capital. You know, where, where do we need stronger national responses in a European context? And where do we need to have a greater concentration of authority? At the European level, uh, how do you, how do you see that mm-hmm. uh, division? Because it gets to this question that you raised and that Peter was mm-hmm. just asking about—that is, the public confidence that uh, their their systems of government yeah. are responsive in ways that are meaningful to them. Yeah.
1: I think we should a uh, clear defined division of responsibility. Uh, there are uh, um, development on the way in the world that could not be answered. They couldn't only answered on the centralized level from Brussels, from Europe, from European Union. So if we want to be part of this global debate between China and United States, there could only Europe um, a strong voice inside. And if you ask for a definition of standards, for example, in, for the digital world, it's not possible to do it in Luxembourg or in Belgium or mm. in uh, Bavaria, you have to do it on the European level. And we have we could learn last year that due to the um, data protection law from the uh, European level, which was launched two years ago, that now in United States, in California, for example, they starting a state law in the same level, that means the first Um, mover will take it all if you define the standard. So it makes clear that it's worthwhile to do it on the European level. On Mm -hmm. the other hand, we do have a lot of uh, responsibilities in the German lender, in the German, on the federal level, in the German municipalities, on cultural level, on on education policy, on improvement of labor market conditions, and so on and so on. And I think for the people, most striking is that over time it was not quite clear who is responsible in which field of activity?
2: Mm. If I could follow up on Jeff's question, uh, the German economics minister, uh, Peter Admeider, has uh, recently released a paper on, on industrial strategy, which I think it's right to qualify as proposing a stronger role for the state and also for uh, proposing some new kinds of uh, actions by the European Union at that level. I, I wonder. What seemed to be, from my point of view, absent was the transatlantic perspective because it seems to be that a lot of the paper is a response to the rise of China. So again, on this question of where the what's the appropriate location for the activity, whether it's the state or the EU the EU, but could it how much of it should also be transatlantic or 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 among a sort of broader west, Is there anything we can do with china or is it is it really most is it an either or kind of question?
1: This paper from Peter Altmaier is, in several perspectives, uh, very problematic. Um, as an industrial state policy strategy, it's questionable from a market economy perspective. As a national paper inside Europe, it's questionable. We had to work on the European level, and we should not forget, in 2014, the, war, the European strategy on industrial activity to strengthen uh, industrial network uh, and and industrial alliances and value chain creation in European cross-border. And the third point, as you mentioned already, is the uh, transatlantic cooperation. We need a transatlantic uh, trade and investment partnership. It's also an important cornerstone in our um, uh, institutional setting for wealth creation in Germany. So this paper uh, is a very small, focused one. Mm
0: -hmm. Um I think it's also remarkable uh, for observers of Germany and Europe to see a Christian Democrat, a center- right um, uh, minister um, uh, from Germany, which has, you know, typically been uh, very resistant to anything that sounds like an industrial policy or state direction of the economy uh, to be taking such uh, such a position, even if it's an idiosyncratic one uh, that isn't shared uh, more broadly. It brings me to the question of, you know, as, as European political officials and as uh, economists uh, uh, like yourself, um, look at the challenges that Europe faces in a changing international environment. Are there also changes in the economics profession and in the views of the economy? It seems to me that uh, that there is uh, you know there there is some change in the way German economists uh, generally uh, are looking at these challenges and perhaps a willingness to test uh, new hypotheses. But do you have the same uh, feeling?
1: Yes because also here's true that uh, the traditional instrument, the traditional theoretical um Argumentation we have have not the same uh, relevance as uh, they used to have in the past. Um, In the digital transformation, we are um, working on an investment perspective which is looking forward in a very cloudy, foggy world. So what is is the appropriate um, policy condition for that? I would say we need... um, um, different um, standard setting for the digital world, which is just started. Um, maybe it could be delivered by the branches and sectors of the industry on its own. But on the other hand, we should an enforcement on such, such standards. So there is a different perspective on standard definition mm-hmm. and enforcement. The same is true on uh, competition policy. Uh, in this world of global markets, the question is who? what is a relevant market for your uh, uh, power in market activity and and the assessment of the power activity so this has changed and there this is also
0: reflected in the debate the economists are delivering just days well and and this uh, to, to come to a specific example there was the recent uh, decision by the uh, European competition commissioner commissioner um, to uh, you know not to allow the merger mm-hmm. of uh, Siemens and uh, alstom uh, uh, to form a global competitor uh, in the in the rail um, uh, sector, uh, and and that seems to be the the core of the question: yeah. is is it the policy of is it the task of the European Union to ensure competition within the European space, mm-hmm. or to ensure that European companies can compete uh, mm-hmm. in an international market? That that's that's uh, the the crucial point at the end of the debate, and it's not quite clear if the
1: Commission was wrong or right in this decision because. Uh, Alstom Siemens made an offer uh, for a merger, which was maybe um, defined too wide. And uh, if they were able to bring it a little c- closer to the heart of the activity, then the, the decision may have could have a different outcome. Because uh, mm. then um, they said in the specific technique there is another relevant market than in the general production of high-speed railway uh, 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 trains
2: you mentioned the digital economy uh artificial intelligence is of course going to be a huge part of that and uh, i think it's probably still an open question who who's gonna gonna be you know on top of that evolution china certainly has the data uh the united states has a lot of the technology but germany has a lot of the manufacturing and a lot of the, a lot you know manufacturing will be an important application of AI, so I wanted to know how you saw that landscape among these sort of Germany slash the European Union, China, the United States, and 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 the evolution of of AI, and and uh, does does Germany have it, and, and do does Germany and and does the EU more broadly have a chance to take a leading role?
1: I think yes, if you uh, will accept that the digital transformation will have different uh, spa, uh, different ways to be successful. You have the B to C world, um, the, the the devices Bis- business to consumer business for to our consumer, listeners out there, yeah, who, uh, and, and uh, they, they offer the devices to organize our daily life. This is a. The way of digital transformation, which uh, came from the Silicon Valley, which is the American digitization model, if you want to say. The German is a different one. It's an industry 4.0. It's a combination of manufacturing and service sector activity. No, it's combined with a cyber physical system. So you have the data in real time available from your user of your machine and you can go on learning the machine. The Internet of Things. uh, The Internet of Things and uh, I think um, this is important to see that this is a big chance that there are different ways for success in the new digital world, if you understand that there are different business model behind in the business to consumer or business to business world. And I would say the chances, and that really the German situation is at cutting edge, is the business to business world. We are the number one in providing solutions which are very differentiated, very specific for a customer as on the, an, another business um, uh, uh, partner in, in, in your field.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 then that also prompts the question um, is there a need for maybe not for an industrial strategy um, at the european level but is there a need for um, uh, for stronger standard setting um, wh- are there gaps in the legal and regulatory framework um, within europe to promote um, precisely that uh, kind of a role and to uh, to ensure that uh, that Europe and Germany remain in, in a leading role uh, as this evolves. And I
1: think there is a crucial point and I'm not quite clear in the end what will be the the answer to that but it's still a question but who is the owner of non-personal data? Yes. The, the data of machine usage is a different quality than your personal data you have uh, you, defined or given to the system by, uh, made some uh, activity on internet, whatever. Mm-hmm. But in the B2B world, you, uh, you need a lot of machine data. Of, for example, as a producer of elevators, you need the data in real time, what the elevator is doing. But yes. it's not a personal data, so who's the owner of the data? The uh, producer of the elevator, or the owner of the elevator who asks for this by, the, let's say, ThyssenKorp or whatever, or KONE. Mm-hmm. So and uh, this is an open question. Is there a, the legal status of non-personal data? It may be a crucial point. Otherwise, uh, you can uh, s- solve it only on the private legal level. You can have a, a private treaty and you can have a negotiation. But maybe it's a competition aspect on that. So that's, that's, I think, for standard definition, a very open question. And that
2: also has implications for trade negotiations because, of course, you want to make uh, the digital economy part of the, f- of the ne- negotiation. There was a strong chapter uh, in, in the NAFTA. The U.S. and the EU have some different mm-hmm. views on that, so there are some implications yeah. also for trade negotiations, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, it is. It is not really um, uh, analyzed in, the, in a, in a uh, completely w- a new way, but what we are still working on that. It's, it's a legal question. It's an, in the economic sense of data ownership, of non-personal data ownership, is still open, and you have a lot of it comes say there's no need for a new legal, frame, legal framework. I would say... I think it's worthwhile to think about it.
0: Michael Hutter joined us in Washington as part of our Geoeconomic Speakers series. That's an initiative where we bring leading thinkers from Germany to the United States to talk about issues related to the global economy, and it is supported by Allianz. If I could turn to uh, something that is, you know, has characterized um, the discussion just in the last uh, 24 hours, so I think it will still be topical by the time we publish uh, uh, this, uh, this podcast. And that is um, a, a proposal and a, an op-ed article by French President Macron, in, in which he lays out uh, a number of initiatives um, for, for Europe. This, you could see, is a development of his speech at the Sorbonne in, uh, in 2017. Uh, and uh, Macron has been pushing for a reinvigorated Europe. Okay. Um, now, there has been there has been no real agreement uh, between France and Germany about what a revived uh, European Union should look like, um, and and that of course matters deeply because France and Germany have been the the principal drivers of European integration uh, ever since the, uh, the the 1970s and 1980s. Um, so. When we look at things like defense, uh, where Macron is talking about uh, the European Union playing a stronger role in the security of, uh, of its, uh, cit- its citizens, um, but then also in social policy and economic policy, um, that is where many of these ideas that you've been talking about uh, you know, find uh, kind of their practical um, uh, form. So uh, can you say a little bit about where you see the prospects for Franco-German cooperation um, and then after that, I think maybe we'll turn a little bit to what that means for the other parts of Europe, mm-hmm. because uh, France and Germany aren't the only story.
1: Yeah, France and Germany are not the, 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 the whole story. But as you also said, um, in history of European integration, this was uh, both are in the driver's seat of mm-hmm. the European engine. Um, and I think we have to come back to that because it's both the most important states and economic terms as well. So what uh, Macron is doing, he makes clear that there is need for a new vision of European integration after this long way on, and all the steps we did in the past and the conflicts we have on the scene. And I think in, in several points he's right, asking for a defense union uh, Moving on, uh, f- new idea of economic integration. I-, I did not really understand what he's working on social policy because social welfare policy belongs to the national level and the principle of subsidiarity is quite clear on that. Maybe you can organize a little bit the systems in a general way but not in the, in the, in the level of, of, uh, of transfer payments or whatever you want to, to, do, to, to offer to the people. Um, the problem is that um, France is asking for European leadership and Germany is not answering. Mm-hmm. and uh, i think it this mu- this must change in the turn of the year because this is a really year of change in europe we will have a new president of the european council a new president of the commission a new president of the european parliament and a new president of the european central bank so all leading positions will be new in the end of the year new people in and this is time where l- leading forces are also ask for new ideas and this is France and Germany together and this will also uh, must be accepted by the way it should be the, the otherwise the engine won't work so mm-hmm. this is a problem for all the smaller countries so they have to ask for the first movement and uh, first steps from France and uh, Germany
0: the um, uh, and, and then uh, when we when we talk about the uh, the, the rest uh, uh, of Europe uh, you know i think you know, another uh, the thing that's happening this year is the 70th anniversary of the founding of the Federal Republic of Germany, of the founding of NATO. And it's the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which, you know, was not the only event in the, uh, the liberation of Central and Eastern Europe uh, from uh, socialism, but you know, the, the, the iconic uh, one. And I think when you compare those two numbers, you see over 70 years Germany and France, along with the Western European countries, have, have consciously made a series of compromises to push forward European integration, both as a peace project, but then also as a way of of engaging in in the modern uh, economy and in and in the modern um, uh, international politics. Um, whereas over thirty years in the eastern part of Europe, you haven't had that same sense of building Europe together. Instead, it was a joining mm. uh, of Europe, um, and and now we're starting to see the uh, the manifestations of some discontent, um, some areas where um, there is a a desire to assert national um, sovereignty or to reject um, pan-European approaches. Do you think that is a, is it going to take another 40 years before Europe is whole in that way, in that sense of having a shared vision Mm -hmm. of what it is they want to do together and where they want to go?
1: I don't think that we'll need another 40 years, but maybe some more years. Do you Two different aspects. The first is, as you said, um, there are the starting group, which uh, f- were the founding members of the European uh, integration, the uh, European Community on Coal and Steel in 1951, the six member states this time, and their inspiration was just six years after the Second World War, let work on peace and economic integration, and there's no alternative on that. All the accession countries that came later, the Brits in 1973, the um, Spain and Portugal and Greece and so on, and uh, some Scandinavian countries had a different vision. They came late uh, and uh, in an already settled community, uh, but they had the chance to work on it together for the next step was monetary integration. But when the East, Middle East European countries came and asked for uh, uh, membership, the all, all was settled. Mm-hmm. So all was settled. So they have to accept this. And this is, I think, the first problem we have. The second is all these Middle East European member states are delayed nations. They had no chance to define the national identity in the 19th century, in the 20th century. They had to wait after the, the, the Iron Curtain came down in 1990. So they need more time in profiling the national identity. And the second, we need more openness for the different um, preferences, different expectations they have, but we also should be quite clear in economic, in political terms saying what is not acceptable, for example, what Viktor Orban is just doing in, in Hungary.
2: Well, how do you communicate, though, to people who are in that phase of trying to uh acquire a sense of who they are as a nation, that not all of their interests can be advanced by, by their nation alone? How do you, how do you, how, there's a balancing act there. How do you kind of uh, accelerate trust in Brussels on at least a select number of issues as this natural process you describe is going on? I think due to the fact that we have China
1: on the one hand as a different system and a different approach using market capitalism inside the dictatorship political uh, uh, order, Um, and on the other hand, uh, the US President Trump, who is uh, also seems to have a different perspective of transatlantic cooperation that makes clear that in Europe we have to stick together. There's mm-hmm. no chance to be successful on the world scene. Otherwise, uh, we will not, uh, have only the situation to accept the standards defined by all the others. So the
2: more these countries are aware of the global context, the this more is, they, they should be able yeah. to accept uh, a greater role of Brussels.
1: I think that is the very important aspect that we should, should not underestimate, the the, the the pressure from the changing world order on
0: the idea that Europe is the best answer we can have, and maybe also to take the the, the point Peter just made, it's it it isn't the solution is not just more Brussels, you know, it, it, across the board. It is this focus, I think, as you were saying, uh, on the issues of uh, physical uh, security, whether that is uh, border integrity or defence, um, uh, that that those things are better uh, provided at the European uh, mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. So, so that's although it's still written in the treaties that ever closer integration is the uh, the goal, um, that it will be integration focused for the near term on those areas where it's, there's a, an obvious compelling case at the European yeah. level that, that everyone, especially Eastern European countries, many of which look with very nervously toward Russia, um, uh, want to know that they have uh, uh, friends and allies uh, in Europe and across the Atlantic who will stand up for them.
2: Yeah,
1: I think the notion of an ever closer union has to be reformulated. Because ever closer union, what the idea coming from the 1970s, 1980s, one step after another, uh, more integration in economic uh, aspects, more integration in political terms, more integration in also in, in uh, common currency, and so on and so on, and the end is, is a United States of Europe. But I think the situation today is different. We have a lot of integration quality, or high integration quality, and we have to ask what is the appropriate answer to this different uh, security aspect we see around Europe, or the, the threats to our security, what is different in the digital world of standardization. So we have to redefine what does that mean in ever closer union in the
0: year 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to switch uh, to defense because, in addition to being the director of the German Economic Institute, you are also a board member of the Atlantic Brücke, uh, an organization that promotes uh, transatlantic ties, and uh, and you've uh, you've talked a bit about uh, about defense and, um, in particular, the the need for a stronger uh, European defense, which is not identical with an EU defense, um, because, of course, NATO uh, here in Washington is uh, something that we care deeply about as an organization we're a part of. So could you say a word about how you see the end of the peace dividend in Europe um, and growing European investment in defense and how that, uh, how that should, uh, should be organized in a European context? I think we should work hard on the European Defense Union. The,
1: the idea, it was first on the political table in the middle of the 1950s, and the National Assembly in Paris said no in this time. But this is the idea to organize defense uh, in Europe. It's public, European-wide public good. Would that was- include the United Kingdom? If the Brits want to join, they can do it. I have no idea and no vision that they will do this. But mm-hmm. on the continent, we will also solve a lot of other problems. You will solve the budgetary problem of Greece if you have a common security st- uh, infrastructure and a common security policy and uh, bring all this together as joint forces. Mm-hmm. So we need joint armed forces to make clear that we have strong power. And this is, has to be in, uh, combined with the definition of
0: European foreign policy. And, and it has to be, I would assume, but tell me if you agree, this has to be um, – it, it has to connect with NATO. Um, it has, it has yeah. to be not exclusive. In other words, uh, it, it can be – it can function either as uh, European defense – um, but also be part of a transatlantic security response where needed?
1: There is no, uh, no contradiction between. Because if the Europeans stick together, it should be more acceptable for the United uh, States uh, politics to see that they have to invest, that they will invest as the world power, but they're also the Europeans. They can do more and they be part of the NATO. So uh, it doesn't make really a difference if you have uh, 28 27 NATO members, or you have a specific European NATO member uh, which has a strong voice together with the uh, American partners, and maybe the Brits will then uh, reason on that
0: and will maybe have uh, some new ideas on their position in the world. hmm mm-hmm. okay. Um, well, I, and I think, you know, one last thought on that particular topic is that, I think as an observer of European defense trends, and in particular this trend toward greater integration, both of forces in some cases, and also um, the the push to coordinate and have a a European defense uh, market, um, it is valuable, but it seems to be out of sync with the political Um, decision-making structures in Europe. In other words, we are moving faster toward an integrated European defense market um, but without the same movement toward a European uh, decision-making structure that can decide on using those forces. And I wonder if that disconnect um, is a source of uh, potential difficulty. If it's obvious
1: that it's a defense union, Mm -hmm. I think the target should be not so questionable. And even in the NATO, we have the same debate. Yes. So if Poland is asking for some support, looking on the east, Ukraine and uh, what's in the Crimea, uh, it's it's going on. I think we make we, it. It's a chance is that if you start this European Defence Union, it's obvious to the people that this is an advantage of European integration that we stick together in security and policy terms, and it's most convincing argument. Uh, and you can uh, uh, spare a lot of of money if you do it together, uh, public uh, defense procurement and so on. So there's a lot of chance inside, and I think it's uh, even in, in as I said in the economic terms, it's European-wide public good. And you think there's enough
2: sense of common interest among the 27 or 28 countries to let's to start have with that
1: let's say 20, 20, 22 or 23. States, yeah, uh, we will have a, a, some, a multi-speed approach. It's something like universe. a multi-speed. Yeah. We do have a lot of multi-speed. Schengen was multi-speed. European monetary integration was part of a multi-speed. But uh, you think a
2: vast majority of the states do have enough of a sense of a shared yes. interest? I think. I
1: think because uh, who will stay out and ask for its own security investment? Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand this. Yeah.
0: Um, so. Uh, I would like to uh, just c- quote quote something I heard you say earlier today. You said there is a new thirst for European arguments, um, uh, Michael. And I, I want to thank you for sharing some of those arguments with us today. I have the sense that we're at a at a beginning of, of that discussion. And in this uh, year, 2019, and looking ahead, I think there's going to be uh, a renewed focus on uh, these uh, European arguments um, and how the transatlantic community uh, can work together. So I uh, want to Thank you for your contributions to that discussion, and we look forward to continuing it. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist from the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Be sure to check AICGS.org podcast for notes from today's episode. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please leave a review. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at AICGS and Instagram at AICGSDC. Auf Hern.